Welcome to Fairfield, What Are You Reading? A next great read podcast from Fairfield Public Library in Fairfield, Connecticut. I'm Philip Barr, your host and head of adult services. Each month we gather a group of library staff together for a conversation about books, authors, and of course, reading. What we're reading, what we've just finished, what we're excited about coming soon. Most of the books will be new, some may be older, The group will focus on books we love, and hopefully you will too. Imagine you come to the library, ask a librarian for a next great read, a couple more staff stop by, and soon everyone is trading their favorite new reads. Listen in now as we begin. Hello, I'd like to welcome everyone to episode 28 of What Are You Reading? A next book podcast from Fairfield Public Library in Fairfield, Connecticut. Today is June 1st, 2023. Hard to believe it's June already. My guests and colleagues, Jennifer Laceman and Elaine Barry, will be discussing their favorite books that they've been reading lately, favorite new books, and what's on the horizon in publishing. So to start us off, uh, Jen, would you talk a little bit about the summer reading programming that's coming up uh, just in a week or two? Okay, I would love to tell you about our summer challenge this year is Find Your Voice. It is open for all ages. It starts June 16th and goes through August 12th, and you earn prizes by reading or listening to books, attending programs, doing activities, writing book reviews, and so much more. So there's something for every member of your entire family, all age groups. To give you some suggestions for books that you might want to read to participate in our summer challenge, I'm going to throw out my first uh, recommendation, and that's going to be Warrior Girl Unearthed by Angeline Boulay. Um, If Many people, I think, have read her first book, The Firekeeper's Daughter, was one of my all-time top favorite books. Um, She is back with another one that is going to top my list of uh, good books for this year. It's one I'm I'm recommending, even though it's not like on the shelf, place a hold for it. Um, So Angelina Boulay takes us back to Sugar Island and her Ojibwe community in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Um, you don't have to have read Firekeeper's Daughter, by the way, to enjoy this book. So it's another great thriller, just like her first one was. But honestly, I picked this one up. I didn't even read the blurb. I just knew I want to read anything this author put out. I was so impressed with their debut uh, book. Um, So I had no idea what it was going to be about. So I was just invested in everything. I didn't know where the book was going to take me. I just was along for the ride. And I tell you, she is this fantastic storytelling activist. Um, She uses her craft, um, and it's not just to entertain, but she uses it to educate and inspire her uh, audience um, to question things to and basically onward to action and advocacy. For me, she made me question, why haven't I learned more about the indigenous population? Um, Why wasn't I learning this? Um, Why is what little that I have learned only about the past, as if the indigenous population still doesn't exist in this country? Um, She also revisits issues she discussed kind of in her first book and explored uh, violence against women, indigenous women. Um, and considering that that's an issue that four, I think it's four out in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced domestic violence of some sort, I feel like it's an incredibly important topic we don't hear enough about. Mm. And with this book, and you, you'll follow when, with the title, Warrior Girl Unearthed, um, she's talking about the American North, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. 
So since 1990, federal laws provided for the repatriation um, of certain Native American human remains and funerary objects and objects of cultural significance, basically. So if you're going to museums or universities and they have remains of indigenous population people, they have very important, significant artifacts and everything, this act finally gave um, these uh, indigenous populations the ability to reclaim their ancestors, basically, um, objects of, that were significant to them and their culture. Before that, they just, you know, these, these museums and universities just had these items, but it is not, unfortunately, there are a lot of hoops and a lot of red tape that they must go through, and it takes a lot of time to reclaim their ancestors. So this book explores that. So I, it was just, it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about this, and it starts to make you question other things that you see in museums and how they got them and if they should really have them. So uh, this was just an eye-opener. It's a great mystery, but it also just makes you think about so many issues. So I really highly recommend her. I think that's a great, um, I, I had no idea what the book was going to be about when you were talking about it, but I just think it's, I, I myself have also started thinking whenever I go to a to an, to an exhibition or a show, or especially permanent collections, because I think the current exhibitions at a lot of museums maybe don't have that issue. But when you look at permanent collections in a lot of the really big museums, they have things from all different cultures from all over the world. And where did that all come from? You know? It's just interesting. And I think this is just the start of like a lot of people from a lot of different cultures and communities around the world, you know, getting this uh, power back to get their their history and their ancestry back. It's really great. I think, yeah, and it makes me even as like a programmer who does arts and crafts and programs, thinking about that as far as um, appreciation versus appropriation, um, what activities, you know, like people doing dream catchers and things like that. Are you appropriating culture? Are you being um, respectful in the way you're presenting an activity or anything like that? It, it, it's all part of this, and it has made me think a lot about that. Yeah, that's great. So I'll throw out a second book Sounds good. <laughs> before we move on. Um, and this is entirely I'm uh, entirely heading a different direction with this. I'm going to talk about a, a middle grade book, which I don't usually do, I don't think, in your podcast. Um, it's called World Made of Glass by Anne Polinsky. And it is a, I, I hate to say it, it's a historical fiction. It takes place in the 1980s. Um, <laughs> and that dates me. Uh, so it's set in New York in the 80s, as I mentioned, um, and I feel like also, I should just throw this out in the beginning, I feel like this would be a really great and powerful uh, share, a book to share with your preteen, um, and if you're competing in the Summer Challenge, if you're participating, you both get credit for that, by the way, but I feel like it's a great one for you to share and discuss some potentially um, difficult issues. So uh, it's set in the 80s, and the author really... it hits you right away with the opening line, dad is dying. And Iris, our main character, her dad has AIDS and is dying. Um, and it's the fear and prejudice surrounding AIDS causes Iris to isolate herself. She hasn't told her friends that her dad is sick. Um, she hasn't told her teachers. She's missing out on all this support that she really needs. And she's really, she fiercely loves her dad, but she's struggling um, because her parents recently split up and her dad has a, a newer partner and she's struggling with that. She's struggling to find a balance between remembering he's 
kind, loving dad and also managing her anger. She feels for society's basically general lack of interest in working toward educating the public about HIV and treating people with the virus, um, that her dad isn't getting proper medical care. Uh, and it's a story about grief, overcoming hurtful and hateful actions caused by ignorance and misinformation, which I feel like is really an issue we're dealing with now too. Um, LGBTQ community and health issues, misinformation, ignorance, all of that is really front and center. And I think this would be a good way reading this and sharing this to discuss that. I grew up in the 80s and I would have been a contemporary to this main character, to Iris. Um, and for me, the story rings so true. Um, this I remember being this age and seeing Ryan White in the news and seeing the news and wondering and being curious um, and actually going out and honestly finding a book, um, a, a nonfiction book about a mother who told her a story, a, her, her story about having a son with AIDS and buying that myself because I wanted to learn about this and I didn't really have adults who were discussing this at that time in this small town uh, Midwest America that I grew up in. So I think that this is, it's such an important book and I'm not seeing enough buzz about it, um, dealing with an important issue, important issues. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's interesting because I, you know, we can all relate to what's happened with COVID. Like I was just having lunch with somebody and we were talking about like how bad it was at one point. And I think already our minds are starting. I don't know if it's human nature to like go back to a pleasant or space like in the present moment but um i think this books like this are so great because they act as um as information and historical you know even if they're historical fiction they're acting as like a marker for young people to find out what things were like back then because there was a you know at the beginning of the crisis there was a huge amount of disinformation that was out there there were people calling for quarantines for gay men to be quarantined um, all sorts of really crazy things similar to what we went through with covid um, and then, like I said, you like we see it now how quickly you go back to like, oh, did that happen? Like, oh, was it that bad? I don't remember. It was a year and a half ago. So this being, you know, 40 years ago is just is just incredible. I just want to mention, like, as a companion book, I, as you were talking about this, Jen, I remembered a book I had read a while ago. Um, a young woman named Alyssa Abbott. She's she wrote a book a couple years ago called Fairyland: A Memoir of My Father, and it's about her father coming out in the 70s, and then. And, um, and then she ended up living with him, and she was in, introduced to the gay community back then. And then uh, her, it was, this was in San Francisco, and her father did eventually get get AIDS. But it was um, it's it seems like it would be a good companion piece for adults. It's definitely an adult memoir, but um, but have to have like a middle grade book and then adult memoir on the same subject would be great. So yeah, sounds good. And the Great Believers would be another book for yes, adults that would 100%. be a good companion book because there also is a, a component of activism in this book too. I think is it Act Up Act that was up. the group mm -hmm. that and her in this her fictional this fictionalized story her father played a role in kind of helping out with that group too and she is becoming interested in helping out in that group too. So I think it's a good way of also encouraging advocacy and promoting um, activism within preteens and teens too. Yeah, because there's so many things that are happening right now in their world as as children that, you know, climate change and, um, and you know, um, social justice. And there's so many things that need to be addressed that um, kids are going to have to, um, they're going to have to, you know, pick something and, and run with it. 
um, and, and support things throughout the course of their life. So it sounds like a great introduction. Elaine, do you have something for us? Um, I have a couple of books. Hello, I'm Elaine Barry. I'm a member of the adult services team at the Fairfield Public Library. I've read a few books that I was quite fond of. Uh, one is The Gifts by Liz Hyder, and another, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder by David Gran. Uh, he also wrote The Killers of the Flower Moon, and I'm waiting for that movie to come out because I love that <laughs> book. Nice. Um, I believe the theme that links the books that I'm going to discuss is risk. Uh, I like writers, uh, The Gift, because it's a mix of science fiction, fantasy, science, and feminism. Wow. Uh, the Gifts is set in 1840, Victorian England, and Dr. Edward Meeks is an ambitious young doctor who cannot escape the shadow of his favored, of his favored best friend, Dr. Samuel Lovell. Meeks desperately seeks the recognition that he deserves, and when he hears rumors about a woman who's grown wings, angel wings, he will stop at nothing to find her. It becomes a rather, um, it's amazing how one thinks of a doctor and thinks of health and thinks of life, and then this man's ambition just turns him into a horrible human being. Um, the sight of her, of the angel, fills Meeks with wonder, then curiosity, and then ambition, and then obsession. But Meeks' sudden transformation from honorable physician to desperate madman takes a step back to the female characters of this story. They too experience a transformation and his actions affect these women. And even though he is slowly uh, becoming insane, they become stronger in their defiance of him. They too experience a transformation in the midst of neglect and cruelty set before them. They grow stronger, even more independent, and seek out what they want as they defy the smothering protocol set upon women in the 19th century. Hmm. If you like reading science fiction, fantasy, and feminism rolled all into one, this book is for you. Wow. Do, now, did you did you say this, and I just didn't pick it up, but what is there a relationship between the female characters and, and Meeks? Uh, yes. One, one female character is his wife. Okay. Another is the one is a re young reporter. Okay. And um, she defies the Victorian protocols of that time in order to get the story. Wow. Sounds great. My second book is The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny and Murder by David Gran. It's September 1740, and the wager is one of five British man-of-war ships setting sail for Spain. With a crew of 283 men, their mission is to capture a treasure filled with Spanish galleon known as the Prize of the Ocean. But two and a half months and 3,000 miles later, the wager is lost. Bashed against rocks in a violent storm, ripped apart, leaving a skeleton crew of 143 men adrift. Graham tells a gripping story of a tormented voyage, the determination to survive, and the court-martial that follows. Graham details the futile life of a sailor in the 18th century when navigation, at best, is bad. Uncharted waters are hazardous. Diseases strike with no known cure. They just watch the sailors die. Rats run wild from every seam in the ship, 
and sleeping men drown in their hammocks when great waves break over the decks. The perils of the sea were well known, and men were kidnapped from the streets of ports to serve as sailors on ships preparing for war. I was totally unaware of that. Yeah, completely. I was surprised to learn this, and I always thought sailing at sea was an adventure for the sea captains and their crew of the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, I watched a lot of films. <laughs> <laughs> From the golden era to the, all the old 40s and 50s. Exactly. Not very realistic, but we loved them. <laughs> yes, indeed. But this book dispels any romantic notions I might have had, and I'm glad it did. These men were incredibly brave, and this is a beautifully written book that has provided an incredible list of source materials for further reading. And one of the shipmen on the wager um, was the grandfather of Lord Byron. And his journals are beautifully written. And he, thank goodness, did survive and lived a very long life. But Lord Byron, the poet, does echo a lot of his grandfather's writings in his poetry. Hmm. Fascinating. Jen, do you want to give us one or two more? And um, Yeah. So I'm going to uh, throw out one that has been incredibly popular in the YA room this, uh, this year. So it's The Davenports by Crystal Marquis. And this one reminded me of a teenage version of Bridgerton, basically, the series on Netflix and the Julie Quinn book. Um, it's set in 1910 Chicago, and the story centers on a wealthy black family, the Davenports. And the formerly enslaved patriarch is a self-made man who makes his money by starting a luxury carriage company. And he's got three children, John, who's 20, Olivia, who's 19, and Helen, who's 18. And they've all lived this very sheltered and... Uh, with every advantage kind of life, and now they're coming of age and they're trying to figure out what their roles are um, and what they will actually want to be um, and what they want is it the same thing their parents want for them. So there's romance, there's love triangles all over the place. There's also activism, again, politics, gender expectations, and fighting against gender norms. Um, and this is just the start of the series. So I have to say one thing I really enjoyed about this story was that the idea was based on a real-life story of the Patterson family, um, a real family, and it focuses on part of uh, black American history that really isn't told in school, this this post-Civil War where there were successful black families, entrepreneurs and everything. So I really li liked that aspect too. Um, I'll throw out another book that's a fun, fun book uh, for Pride, another YA book. I like this author. Uh, it's, uh, and this one came out, I believe, in March of this year. So another brand new one, basically. It's Spellbound by F.T. Lucan. And this is just like a sweet, magical, gentle romance. Um, nothing earth-shattering about this book, but it's just a fun book. It's It's that wrapped in a quilt on a rainy day, this cold outside. It's that kind of feeling when I read this book. Um, Rook, our main character, wants to become a sorcerer's apprentice to the most powerful curse breaker in, magic, in the magic world. And by the way, this world essentially is like our world, but with magic. Um, the unfortunate thing is that Rook does not have like a single ounce of magic in them. So that presents a little bit of a problem becoming the Sorcerer's Apprentice. 
through a lot of charm, which we love about this character, and sheer brilliance, somehow Rook secures a position as maybe not the apprentice, but at least like a glorified kind of administrative assistant for this kind of prickly, but still like fun and engaging, uh, powerful curse breaker. And then enters in Sun, this other sorcerer's apprentice who to the rival slash frenemy curse breaker and sparks fly there's chemistry two lovable unique characters their sorcerers are lovable and unique that they're working with and there's adventure and because this is a ya book of course the teens join forces and kind of have to save their bosses and point out serious flaws in magic world's hierarchy it's all very fun um, with a tinge of uh, adventure and excitement. But also what I really love about this story um, is obviously the characters. They're fun. but um, And I don't know how to describe this, but it's kind of, um, it's an effortless LGBTQ romance. There's no coming out statements. There's no discussions of identity or sexuality. There's no issues with that. Basically, it's just characters. One uses he, him. One uses they, them. And they just have interest interactions. It's natural. There's no need for labels. There's it, it's just this love story on you know that just organically happens. And I thought it was very sweet and gentle. So it would be it's just a fun one. It's kind of um, it gave me similar like light feelings to the house in the cerulean sea as far as just feeling happy and smiling. But like for teens, as that was an adult book. So um, that's one I'd recommend too. Sounds great. Elaine, I think you have one more for us. Yes, I do. And this is a, a nonfiction book. It's called Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work by Joanne Littman. She's a writer for the Wall Street Journal. Um, Mark Twain said necessity is the mother of taking chances. And this book is all about the aha moment when inspiration for change strikes. And people take risk and they act on it. Lippmann relates many anecdotes of people who succeed at one career but recognize that mm, this isn't them, and they change their path like that regardless of age. For example, James Patterson was writing books for at least 20 years while keeping his day job and moving up the ladder in advertising, which he was very good at, but he didn't care for it. Then one day on his way to work, sitting in traffic, he made the decision. When he got to his office, he quit his job and he was CEO of one of the largest advertising agencies of the world. Littman also tells us how, at one given moment, the answer to a problem can materialize just out of the blue. For example, J.K. Rowling derived the character of Harry Potter on a train trip. E equals MC squared came to Einstein while he was riding his bike. She describes these moments as the aha moment or the eureka moment, but concedes that they arise from a long, tedious process. The steps are stretch, struggle, stop, step away from the process, and then the solution comes. The reinvention or the reimagination, the epiphany happens. She also discusses the Tiara syndrome, PTSD, ageism, and entrepreneurship and their role in achieving personal and professional success. This is an easy 
fast read. And if you're thinking of making a change in your life, I suggest you read it because it's inspirational. And I can identify with this because I did have a career and I just said, that's it. And I went on to another grad program and I pursued librarianship and I absolutely love it. No looking back. And it, it just happened. One day I said, this is it. So this is a wonderful read. And um, what it does also not only provide you with anecdotes and just facts of people who've done it, but it also, all along the way, you get reassurances uh, from different walks of life that these people made the decision and they're very, very happy that they did, just in case you're thinking about doing the same. That sounds great. And it's nice that you, I mean, the way that you described it, it sounds like it's really accessible and sort of easy to digest as opposed to it's like sometimes a lot of these books can get really weighed down and serious, which of course changing what you're doing in life is a serious thing, but it's nice to have, you know, lighter books or, or easier to access, access books. Yes, that's very true. It's, it's a very easy read, and she gives you so many examples and so many famous people whom this has happened to um, that um, it, it's really remarkable that regardless of their age, that they just made the decision and they just jumped in and did it and took the risk. Yeah, it's great. So I'm going to throw out a couple of um, books. Jen has mentioned Pride um, earlier, and I have uh, four adult um, books that I just wanted to mention. They're all actually coming out on June 6th of 2023. So maybe by the time you listen to this, it will already have passed and the books will be on the shelf. Um, the first two actually are, um, Jen mentioned earlier that um, the, uh, the, the uh, sweet uh, romance story was uh, free of identity. These are actually, the titles are actually very... Um, very full of identity, but I think in a fun way. So the first one is a memoir. Um, it's called Lesbian Love Story. It's by Amelia Posana. And um, she moved to Brooklyn and decided to start to research um, uh, lesbian women in that area. And then it led to a lot of other things. So it says this is the story of Posana's journey into the archives to recover the stories of lesbians in the 20th century, who they were, how they loved, and why their stories were destroyed and where their memories echo and live on. Centered around seven love stories for the ages, Posana's Hunt takes readers from a drag, a drag king show in Bushwick to the home of activists in Harlem, and then across the ocean to Hadrian's Library, where she searches for traces of Sappho in the ruins. Um, it's, this is getting a lot, of, a lot of press, a lot of buzz, and it sounds really, really interesting. So if you're looking for a good memoir, um, also the fact that it has seven different stories, I think that's fun because then you, it, it might be that you can read like a chapter a night or something like that, which I always like with, um, with nonfiction. The second book, which is also nonfiction, but it's a graphic novel, is called Last Gay Man on Earth. And this, again, is getting a lot of buzz. Uh, the author's name, I, um, I apologize up at front, um, I'm having trouble with his first name. It's Y-P-E, so I'm not sure how that's pronounced, um, Yip or Yape. Um, I looked it up online before and I just couldn't get a pronunciation. Um, but he's Dutch, um, his name's Yip um, Driesen. He's a gay man living in Amsterdam with his boyfriend Nico, and when asked by Nico to accompany him on a work trip to America, he must confront his deep fear of flying. While doing so, he also comes to terms with his social and sexual anxieties, his neurotic nature, and a serious case of imposter syndrome. So again, this is, um, we talk a lot about graphic novels on the podcast. 
Um, this one's getting a lot of buzz um, and looks like it's a lot of fun as well. And kind of like an, um, a look inside somebody's, um, somebody's brain and what's going on with them emotionally. Uh, and then the uh, last nonfiction that I've got, because um, I end with a fiction book, is um, Elliot Page's memoir has just come out, or it's coming out on June 6th, called Page Boy. It's a groundbreaking coming-of-age coming memoir from the Academy Award-nominated actor, a generation-defining actor, and one of the most famous trans advocates of our time. Elliot will now be known as an uncommon literary talent as he shares never-before-heard details and intimate interrogations on gender, love, mental health relationships in Hollywood. And I just have to make a note um, about progress. I know we're going through a time period where there's a lot of issues with um, trans rights, trans health, um, backlash, um, people not agreeing with people, people, you know, writing laws and things. And I I find it really interesting that when I, after his transition, I immediately on the streaming services, when you see him listed, uh, they switched the gender. They switched his name like immediately on all of his older films, which I don't. I think that's a first. I don't know. I don't really remember that happening to anyone. Um, I mean, we obviously haven't had a lot of transgender actors um, or directors, um, but I'm sure they probably did that for the Wachowskis, the Matrix, the um, siblings that did the Matrix movies. But I, I feel like this is probably the first time they did that, and I think I was really impressed with how quickly the studios. Um, came around to that, which was really nice. Uh, and then the final one I want to mention is by an author who I really love. His name is Paul Rudnick. Um, Elaine and I were talking about him before we started the podcast. He's really fun. He's uh, done so much. He's done theater. He's written theater. He's written nonfiction. He did the screenplays for the original Adams Family movie back in the 90s and also First Wives Club. And then a couple years ago, he put out a novel called Playing the Palace, which I really enjoyed. Um, it was the um, rom- a romance between a lonely event planner and the Prince of Wales. Um, if you read and loved Red, White, and Royal Blue, you probably are thinking, this sounds pretty familiar. So it was just Rudnick's take on that, um, a, fil- a familiar sort of like common person and um, and some sort of person from the monarchy and everything. But it was a lot of fun. But this one sounds great. It's called Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style. I've got it on my to-reads list. Um, it's, uh, and this is uh, just reading the, um, the description. You can get a feel for Rudnick's um, sense of humor and also his style of writing. He's, he just really is sort of a rat-tat-tat when it comes to um, his writing. So it goes, devastatingly handsome and insanely rich. Farrell Covington is capable of anything and impossible to resist. He's a clear-eye romantic, an astute, but not a snob, self-indulgent, yet wildly generous. As a son of one of the country's most powerful and deeply conservative families, the world could be his. But when he falls in love for Nate Reminger, an aspiring writer from a nice Jewish family in Piscataway, New Jersey, the results are passionate and catastrophic. So his books are always just really fun, and I'm sure this will be a great summer read for people that are um, interested in a light romance and from somebody who's actually a very smart comic writer. So... Um, so that's it. Anything else from either of you? I think those sound like great books. Yeah, my mind going on those now. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jen and Elaine. And thank you, listeners, so much for joining us on another episode of Fairfield What Are You Reading podcast brought to you by Fairfield Public Library in Fairfield, Connecticut. Special thanks to our podcast editor, Max Berryman, for making us sound great. Check out show notes for book titles and authors mentioned today. And please join us next month for more of your favorite library staff.